0: taste this is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop rpgs
1: the quest for fire occurred not because anyone knew what the practical uses for it would be but because it was fascinating
0: i'm ian woodworth and i'm joined by my co-host james Daly. today we are continuing our travel through the plains we've finished with the echo planes and the transitive planes and so now we are starting into the inner elemental planes so we've gone ahead and divided these up a bit because there's a lot to go over so today we're going to be covering the planes of elemental fire and elemental water
1: i just have to ask are there any snakes
0: on the planes oh there's there's snakes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes there's snakes <laughs> have you not heard of fire snakes yes yes definitely they, have. they are the adolescent form of salamanders i like salamanders salamanders are kind of cool they don't get used
1: enough they really don't and that's some of the stuff we can talk about and you know i'm kind of really looking forward to is the lore of some of these creatures salamanders have long since been a favorite of mine
0: so we talked a little bit before we got started and you wanted to start with the plane of fire so you want to go ahead and dive into what we've got for the elemental plane of fire
1: so the elemental plane of fire it's one of your nearer realms so again trying to use that giant cosmology wheel that you have the material plane as where we're at now, and of course, because it's the center of everything, because I'm here, as it should be. The material plane does center around me and the u- rest of the universe around that. You have your nearby realm. So you've got your ethereal realm and your astral realm. You've got the feywild Wilds, you've got the Shadowfell. And then just outside of those, the next ring out for lack of a better term or envisioning are your four elemental planes. So we've got fire, water, earth, and air. If you're a fan of the Avatar series. You're set. So again, delving into the fire plane, the fire plane I think is one that people tend to use more frequently just because, I mean, fire elements are easy to envision. It's easier to picture mentally. So people go with that. There's actually some really neat opportunities for lore that we'll start bringing up as things come along. The one deviation is that people, when they picture the Realm of Fire, start trying to immediately envision the Nine Hells and the Lake of Fire and things like that. And these are two vastly different planes, so do not get these interposed or interlinked because they are very, very different.
0: Now, just keep in mind that there are portals between the City of Brass in the Plane of Elemental Fire... And the Nine Hells. Yes. There are there are permanent portals that connect the two, but they are two very different, very distinct locations. Very, very true.
1: And then the City of Brass is something that I've only recently encountered and actually had my first encounter with the City of Brass as we started talking about some of these other planes and realms just even up to a few weeks ago. That concept of that kind of elemental, multidimensional bazaar that I find really cool and the Another fine myth series by Robert Aspen, which was written in the 70s and 80s. So if you like some like good pulp fantasy fiction, right up your alley if you like that kind of thing. But they had the city of Diva, which was that kind of thing where everybody would kind of go in and if it could be bought, it could be bought there. So again, another great, great setting to put your characters in.
0: Yeah. The city of brass is probably the single most well fleshed out location in the Inner Realms. It has multiple editions worth of lore built into it. 90% of the time, if you're going to the Elemental planes, you're gonna go to the Elemental Plane of Fire to go to the City of Brass. That is the location to go to. So I did want to take a minute to talk a little bit about how the cosmology setup of the Elemental planes has shifted from older editions to 5th edition.
1: I haven't moved. What shift? Uh, Again, I'm the center of everything.
0: (laughs) Well, you can still be the center of everything in the third edition version. In third edition, what you ended up having was you had the material plane in the center with the plane of shadow and the ethereal plane kind of balled up on it. And then that was basically floating suspended in the center of this cube. And this cube was the astral sea, the astral plane. And then on each of the faces of the cube was one of the inner planes. So you had the plane of fire and the plane of water on opposite sides. You had the plane of air and the plane of earth on opposite sides. And then you had the positive energy and negative energy planes on opposite sides. So basically, if you're looking at a D6, you had fire on one, water on six, air on two earth on five positive on three negative on four
1: yeah that sounds about right and again i've always seen this presented as a 2d very smooshed drawing so again everything's kind of flattened out that makes sense you know you talk about these six planes and six realms and again the science geek in me i automatically go back and thinking about quarks and you've got your six types of quarks you got up down strange charmed uh spin and or up down strange charmed I forget the other two, but there's six quarks. And so my brain automatically goes there. So obviously these are the fundamental building pieces of our universe. I mean, even more so to that whole thread.
0: (laughs) So in fifth edition, it's a little bit more like a ring around where the material plane and its echoes, the Feywild and the Shadowfell are still in the center of it. And then the ethereal plane is this nebulous sort of space between the material and echo planes and the inner planes, and the inner planes are sort of on this accretion disk, if you will, around it. And so at the center is where all of the elements are very stable, and they're very, very similar to how they appear in the material plane. And as you get further away from the material plane, as you travel further out into the elemental plane, the more primal that element becomes until you reach the edge of it, where it starts to transition into the elemental chaos where the elements can literally not hold themselves together and they get dispersed into this chaotic whirl on the outside of everything.
1: And you start looking to this and I mean the amount of lore that goes into the cosmology for D&D's amazing. I mean, you can find depending on how far back you want to go. Aristotle talked about how, you know, none of the planes or none of the realms because they all believed in the, the five elements could be infinite because nature abhors infinite like they abhor a vacuum. So like at these points where things become just kind of so nebulous and weird, but completely intangible, You've got the idea of like Plutonic solids or Plutonic realms, which are just the absolute condensed ideal form of something. You've got the Norse concept of the multi-worlds with Yggdrasil and things like that, where they're all kind of stacked up on each other on a world tree versus laid out. You've got the more European medieval version that, again, ties back to Aristotle. But instead of being flat and laid out, everything's based off concentric rings. And you see little hints of all of these when you start trying to describe on how the realms are mapped out and honestly any of these could be perfectly applicable you can use any of these wizards of the coast have their current set which is a great way to do it and again everything kind of like ian was saying slowly kind of spreading out from the material realm i think is a good way to kind of get a touch of all of those into one general concept
0: right and the D &D world it's well suited for a material centric multiverse Because the Material Plane is where you're going to be spending 99% of your time and 99% of your adventures. Most of the planes outside of the Material Plane are just places that you go visit on occasion. And you're probably not going to go to most of them in any one given campaign.
1: You're either going to die or bring back some really awesome loot.
0: Yeah, you will. But the way that the inner planes are set up in 5th edition. Because in 3rd edition... Each plane was completely separate. It was purely that plane across the entirety of its space. But in the fifth edition, the way they've got it laid out as a ring with the opposing elements on opposite sides, you have transition zones between each of the planes. So you have the plane of magma between earth and fire. You have the plane of ash between fire and air. You've got the plane of ice between air and water. You've got the plane of ooze between water and earth. So you actually have these transitional elemental planes between the prime elemental planes. So there's more space because you have various creatures throughout the additions that don't really fall into one pure elemental phase. You end up having things like the methods that are transitional. They're crosses between the elements So you know you have like the steam methods and you have the ash methods and the mud methods and all of these different little elemental creatures that are combinations of the planes.
1: I absolutely love methods. They're probably some of my absolute favorite mobs, particularly lower level. And yeah, yeah, Methods are great. Definitely touch on these. But as you're talking about, as you have these transitional planes now, I really think this feels much better. This feels more natural for lack of a better term. I mean, yes, we're talking about natural and a complete fantasy setting, so there you go. But I like that blend. And again, it lends a bit of credence to how Lauren stuff in D&D is developed. You have your shifting with your alignment stuff and not everything's black and white anymore. There's a lot more subtlety. There's a lot more gray. And not just because we're all colorblind now, but because these things are out here. And I think this leads to, again, a more tangible, a more immersive story. I think if you're younger or you just kind of want that whole good guy versus bad guy and there's a perfect time for those stories where everything is cut and dry. But I think where you get those different bits of shade where it could be a little of this it could be a little that for me it's a much better story it's more immersive i think the characters whatever characters you come with tend to have more depth with your morality and so even when you start dealing with you know your alignment in your realms one thing slowly changing to another that just tickles all my story funny bones i like that concept
0: a lot all right so we said that we were going to focus on fire and water so let's go ahead and Stop talking about all the rest of it. That's coming in later episodes. (laughs) Let's get focused on fire and water. We said we are going to start on the plane of fire, so let's go ahead and start on the plane of fire. So, James, do you have some lore stuff that you want to bring in regarding the Plane of Fire.
1: I have a bit of lore. I think I kind of want to intersperse my lore as much as I can with the Plane of Fire because it ties into certain things. One thing I really do want to talk about in all of the planes, but particularly with the Plane of Fire, is the Ifrit. As much as I enjoy fairy lore and fae lore and things like that that we talked about, and I mean, I'm pretty sure you could hear it in our voices when we talked about the fae wilds. It's just fun. The amount of lore surrounding the djinn and the Ifrit, and I wish I knew the other ones because I don't, but again, the,
0: the water is the Marid, and the earth is the Dao.
1: Okay, and the air is going to it's the A something, right? A S No,
0: the air is the Jin.
1: Okay, the air isn't They're, properly the genie.
0: Jin. Okay. Genie is the category. Okay, the subgroups are Jin, Ifrit, Marid, and Dao. Okay, this is a fairly recent discovery, probably in the past year or so for me,
1: but the amount of lore that ties in with the genie, because it tends to be a lot less European, it tends to be more Arabic and Persian. There is a ton of lore, there is so much stuff you can do with these creatures. They're kind of hit and miss, so for me, I'm thinking the Ifrit, I'm kind of, okay, spoiler if you've not seen the end of Aladdin, but when Jafar becomes a genie, he becomes basically an Ifrit, it's basically an evil fire genie for mass simplification. An evil, self-centered, self-important, nearly all-powerful fire genie. The genies are extremely interesting in the way they hold themselves, the way they interact. There's actually some tie-in with Jewish or Yiddish lore when you start talking about the Seals of Solomon and the building of the Jewish temple way way back when the first Temple of Solomon. Just the amount of material that if you get outside of what you're normally used to, or at least for me, so much lore. And again, here's a creature that can just grant you wishes because that's what they can do. So again, very fairy-like in that regard. And also very fairy-like that if they grant you a wish, there's almost always a hook somewhere where a fairy would grant you a wish for personal power or to somehow get some semblance of control or power over the person asking for the wish. The Ifrit tend to manipulate or twist their wishes just because they like messing with people, just because they're mean and sadistic and because they can because a lot of them they are bound by whatever spell or obligation to grant a wish and so it's that uh you know malicious compliance you know i'm gonna do it but i'm gonna do it my way
0: right and in that way they're very similar to hags in that way except that there usually isn't a bargain involved you don't usually bargain with a genie to get a wish you have to find some way to compel a genie to give you a wish
1: Right. So, I mean, again, right there, you're already starting to strike against it because it's not getting anything in return. You've got it backed into a corner normally.
0: Yeah. You have to do something quite substantial and quite exceptional to be granted a wish, to not force a wish out of a genie, to actually get a genie powerful enough to grant wishes to bestow a wish upon you of its own free will. Right. Actually, I think, you know, aside from Aladdin, which
1: most people know, and that's actually coming from uh, 1001 Arabian Nights, which is an uh, old, old text. And again, you get a chance to read that one. That's, and again, that's where most of your like Aladdin and uh, Sinbad and stuff come from. That's a great set of stories to read. Recently, though, The Witcher, the books, they actually cover some genie wishes fairly well. And I think it was in this series. I don't recall exactly, because I wound up reading the books about the same time. And then my sources of entertainment kind of blended together. But The Witcher actually covers some genie and some genie wishes fairly well. That made things kind of interesting to adapt to. So I thought that was really well done. And The Witcher primarily being initially written by a polish author again coming from a slightly different angle of things which is good and that's a great thing with D &D and just books in general if you can get outside of your own culture base and kind of be able to see different things it really does cast a light so the thing that you see all the time you know now you've got robin williams with a giant genie voice or is it this really insidious thing or is it this trickster spirit genies were also covered in neil gaiman's american god for just a tiny little bit i think there was a chapter that dealt with a genie as one of his little asides but Again, definitely gives flavor, and so if you can go outside of what you deal with every day, one, there's some amazing stories, and then two, if you bring these stories and add flavors to your story or your campaign, I think that adds a lot and brings a lot to the table.
0: Right. Okay, so now let's actually get into the plane of fire, James. Okay, so how are we getting
1: into the plane of fire?
0: Um, That's a good question. The best way to find a natural portal to get from the material plane to the plane of fire is going to be find a volcano. Well, you I know. Mean, that's, that's that's the that's the <laughs> best way to do it because there are rivers of lava throughout the plane of fire and on occasion they'll come over and drop off a cliff and make this giant, you know, lava fall and at the bottom of those lava falls is usually a portal that carries through into the material plane. So if you can survive a fall off of a giant lava waterfall into the material plane you know take a swan dive into some lava if you can survive that you can get through to the material plane or vice versa jump into a volcano and pop out on the plane of fire
1: this gives you such a wonderful beautiful idea of how safe the plane of fire is so fey okay let's make a bargain with a fairy Uh, really depending on how you stand or how clever you word things okay that's a coin flip that's great we want to get into the shadow fell I know what we're going to do. We're going to find the grimmest, saddest, most depressing area we can find. And we're just going to dig in there a little bit more. Meh. Okay. Shadowfell. Sure. You know, ethereal plane. Well, you know, you're just going to basically take your inner spirit or your soul and you're just going to separate it from your body and then hope nobody snips a tether from you. Okay. getting a little more wary. You're ethereal plane. So just everything, you know, you're just going to kind of shift. But, and again, that one's not too bad. Plane of fire. Go jump into volcano. Step one, jump into a puddle of lava. That's step one. That's as safe as it's getting.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the only way you're really going to get to the Plane of Fire without like a Plane Shift spell. Right, at
1: least from the Material Plane.
0: Yes, you can find curtains to the Plane of Fire within the Ethereal Plane. So if you can get into the Ethereal Plane and wander around for a while, you can get into the Plane of Fire that way.
1: Look for the big orange door. Yeah, pretty much. So the portals to the Fire Realm in the Ethereal Plane. Per the text, per wizards is always orange. Yes. There may or may not be Kool-Aid man standing there. No, I kinda of want Kool-Aid or some tang. Either way. Maybe oh, some yeah. sunny Some orange drink.
0: <laughs> so the plane of fire in fifth edition is actually much less dangerous than it used to be. In third edition, if you went into the plane of fire without some sort of, say, ring of fire protection or the endure element spell or something along those lines, you would take 3D10 fire damage per round that you were in the fire plane. Yes. yes. every six seconds you take 3D10 fire damage.
1: And this is why Johnny Cash no longer plays DD because he fell into a burning ring of
0: fire and <laughs> and that is getting cut from the episode. No, <laughs> no. Um... it's a bad Sunday. Yeah. So now, now the Plane of Fire uses the extreme heat rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide, where it starts off every hour that you don't have certain amount of water to drink. You make a constitution saving throw versus exhaustion. It starts as a DC 5. You have disadvantage on it if you're wearing medium or heavy armor or what they're considering heavy clothes. So like winter gear or something like that. Not sure why you'd be wearing winter gear to the Plane of Fire, but you do you. Well, you, you
1: star- didn't want to be cold, so you wore your parka before you
0: jumped into the lava pit. So, so we're Sam McGee? Is that what it is? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. We had to bake those potatoes somehow. Yeah. Kudos to anyone who got that reference. <laughs> um, so it starts off as a DC 5 Constitution save. Every hour after that that you make the save, the DC increases by 1. So first hour, it's a five, then it's a six, then it's a seven, then it's an eight until you either leave or you accrue six levels of exhaustion and die. Well, you know, there's that. And the plane is described as being a plane of ankle deep cinders with this faint glow from these rivers of lava throughout the plane.
1: So, you go that, but even kicking back to the third edition version and before, there were a lot of ways to kind of get around that fire damage. The simplest, most effective way is even in the basic set rules, you can get armor of fire protection. There are several spells that we'll touch on that also grant you protection against the elements or protection against fire. So, if you had a chance to prepare, or as a DM and you need to get your party here, There, there's gifts, there's treasures, there are things that you can get your party to so they won't just immediately burn to a crisp and die.
0: Right, and if you have access to somewhere that has a direct portal to the City of Brass, because there are direct portals from the Material Plane to the City of Brass, the City of Brass itself does not have these extreme heat conditions. Right. So if you were able to teleport yourself directly into the City of Brass, you'd be fine. It's just that, you know, if you were doing a Planescape adventure and you come in through Sigil, you can see the City of Brass from the doorway into the Plane of Fire out of Sigil, but you have to cross the plane to get there. Right. And most of your spells, so the Plane Shift spell, it'll get you close. Plane Shift in and of itself will only get you close to the City of Brass. You can say that you're wanting to go to the City of Brass and you'll show up and you'll be able to see it, but you'll maybe, you know, five miles away and you'll have to trudge through the plane through all of this ash in order to get to the city. Yes,
1: and again, going through, I mean, I don't I don't want to throw out stats because every adventure is going to be different. But most of the time, if you're going into the plane of fire, the DM either wants to send you specifically to the city of brass to collect something or run some errands for some gin there, or you're gonna deal with fire elementals and just, you know, do your best impression of a hot dog or a s'more. But most of the time, if you're in the plane of fire you're going to be interacting with the city of brass in one form or another either you're finding equipment you're getting a spell you got shunted there somehow and you needed a refuge and now you owe people favors anything like that and again having it where it was built to be a nice little kind of safe zone within that plane of fire is obviously going to bring people there because you can find nearly anything and everything within the city of brass if your party's needing rings of fire protection, some extra magical scrolls, something along those lines, absolutely 100% will be found in the City of Brass.
0: So another detail that really cements how much focus that they have put onto the City of Brass from edition to edition, just reading through the description in the third edition manual of the Plains, the City of Brass is this floating island over this bed of obsidian, that is covered with a brass dome that is 40 miles across. It is huge.
1: Stupid huge. And the fact that, you know what, they didn't throw out numbers. They literally built in 40 miles worth of lore. Yes, absolutely. You take any adventure and the amount of stuff that you can do in, in you know, put Town 1 in Wizard's Guide to Whatever. As much lore as they have in that town for probably, you know, a good, quarter mile at most 40 miles of lore on multiple levels
0: <laughs> i mean and the city of brass has you know all of these different locations you've got the palace where the charcoal throne is where the sultan of all ifrits is you've got the upper crust district you've got the district with all the portals you've got the district with all of the artisans you've got the district with all the smelters you've got the port on the sea of fire you've got The rookery, which is this lawless zone that even the Sultan's guards, Ifrit guards, don't really like going into if they don't have to. It's just, it's got slums, it's got a high-end residency, it's got all of these things. It's got this huge layout to it with so many details to it that you really could, in theory, run an entire campaign within the city of Brass. You could run an urban campaign in the City of Brass, and just never leave the city. Very easily. There's a
1: lot there. And then even going through later in 5th edition, and they may have started it in 4th. Again, unfortunately, my background in 4th edition is extremely weak. But they started building in some internal conflict among the Efreet. And so now you've got different levels. And like I said, the Efreet and the Jinn and the Genies themselves think that pretty much they are the pinnacle of creation. They are the best of existence and everything is beneath them. And now you've even got this amongst the Efreet. So now you've got some power struggle and politics going on amongst the different Efreet and the different g- types of genie throughout this. So like Ian was saying, very easily could do an entire cityscape or urban campaign with all of this back and forth between factions or whatever you want to build. And that's just within the city itself, the wilds outside the city there's so many different things that you can throw at your characters that there is just so so much you can. Yeah, do. you
0: have, you know, Ifhrite enclaves, you have azer settlements, you've got fortresses and just this whole setup. You've got roving bands of salamanders, you've got you know, magmen and mephits and fire giants and red and gold and brass dragons. You've got things like, I'm not sure if it's come across to 5th edition yet, but in 3rd edition there was a creature called the Thaqua, which, think of a purple worm, now make it fire.
1: More fiery. Just add some fire on there. A couple jalapenos and a habanero,
0: you're Yeah, the Thaqua is this giant fireworm thing that is absolutely terrifying and they are native to the plane of fire. And there's also one creature that I really enjoyed was the pyrohydra. Oh my. So think of the hydra with all of its multiple heads but breathes fire.
1: So this immediately reminds me of the uh, Hydra spell in Diablo 2, and I think it popped up in Diablo 3 as well, because yes. I know in Diablo 2 you could get Elemental Hydra, so you had the Fire Hydra that pop up and shoot fireballs at your enemies, which the art for that was amazing. That was always a fun
0: spell to throw. So there's a couple of different environmental hazards that you end up having in the Plane of Fire 2. You have Rain of Ash, which obscures your vision. and makes it difficult to navigate, but it also deals fire damage if you're walking out in it. According to the third edition books, it increases the damage per round that you would take by 1d10. So now you're taking 4d10 fire damage per round without protection.
1: Right, just imagine that it's a lovely spring day and you're walking through the forest and the forest is on fire. So yeah, all of this ash falling, it's also going to obscure and limit your vision. Depending on how thick the ash is, it can become difficult terrain to walk, so it can even slow your movement speed down even further. So yeah, that's definitely something to throw in. In something like this though, there's actually some really neat things. If you get a chance to read Dragon 347, they actually did a good addition on the fire plane and something called the Ash Willow, where they're basically burnt out cinders of trees It's not a happy place. It's not a pretty place, but it actually does give your characters a break from the heat. So you could actually have like this half burnt forest where your players could run and get refuge and, possibly maybe take a long or short rest if they have need which is kind of cool another thing i wanted to bring up that's from the monstrous compendium number three that's really cool elemental homunculus so much like luke hit out in the tauntaun you can just wear a homunculus suit and kind of walk around with fire resistance or any kind of elemental resistance you need the thought of that because now i'm thinking of gluttony from uh yeah just kind of like stepping inside of gluttony and just kind of like walking around all pudged.
0: and then Another natural hazard within the plane of fire is steam clouds and steam clouds typically pop up in locations where the plane of water pops through because there are vortices between the planes where uh, opposing planes will push through one another. So you end up having these boiling lakes on the fire plane that just give off these huge steam clouds and these steam clouds are kind of, migratory almost and steam clouds don't really have much of an effect on people on the ground but if you're flying that's whenever the steam cloud will hit you oh my surprise and it will mess up your day according to third edition it does the same increase of fire damage that the rain of ash does personally at my table i would run it as dealing acid damage every time you're in it kind of that sulfuric acid kind of feel that you get with a lot of very caustic fire sort of deals sort of an acid rain kind of feel to it
1: i don't know i've personally experienced a sulfuric acid incident and um yeah that's not fun
0: oh it's nasty it's (laughs) nasty nasty stuff Uh, zero out of five would not recommend but yeah it's
1: so long ago in the days of my youth, I actually worked in the chemical stock for my junior college and there was an incident that happened and I literally watched the shirts dissolve off my friend's chest. So yeah, just that kind of thought with any kind of acid damage on it. and that totally makes sense with steam. For me, I'm thinking more like if you've ever hit the pressure cooker valve a little too early, you know, when you get that hot burst of steam, even if you've got like a bunch of like cooking gloves and stuff, you definitely feel it through. That's how I personally would envision that. But the acid damage definitely makes my skin crawl a little bit.
0: Yeah. that. It just drives home just how dangerous it actually is, right? Yeah. So, and and then, like we were saying, for the natural portals going in volcanoes, and I would even put hot springs because yes. hot springs are usually on top of semi dormant volcanoes. So, like Yellowstone is sitting on top of a super volcano that, if it ever goes up, is going to like obliterate a third of the U.S.
1: and the rest of the world with it. Oh yeah, and
0: <laughs> the rest of the world is going to. Perish in the ash cloud. So there's that, but I would also say that during or in the aftermath of huge conflagrations, so like massive wildfires. Oh yeah, you would find that are uh, if you had something like the Great Fire of London in 1666, where it just flattened entire districts of the city, or the Great Chicago Fire. Or the fire that swept through San Francisco after the earthquakes in, was it 1903? oh6 1906. So yeah, those sorts of events where you have these just massive, super hot fires, those would be the sorts of things where it could be enough of a concentration of pure fire to actually create a bridge, which if you're playing, say, an evil campaign and you need to get to the elemental plane of fire, and there just happens to be this perfectly good flammable city nearby.
1: I may or may not have burnt down a halfling caravan or two in my time.
0: (laughs) I've heard these stories, James. I know that you have.
1: Yeah. Halflings are flammable, particularly when you ask them in oil.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that's the sort of things that you can get with the elemental plane of fire. I
1: think a couple other things I would, would want to throw in along the lines of conflagration, something that they've seen, and you can actually find videos of these things now, and they're hypnotic and terrifying, but the, um, basically they're, they're fire tornadoes, just because there's so much yes. heat you create this moving vortex, so it's this moving pillar of fire. A great thing to throw on your table because now you've got, you know, a natural hazard or a field hazard for your map that as a DM, you can kind of move and shift to force your players to kind of get around or to adapt to. That could be a ton of fun.
0: And I would actually say that if you were trying to get to the plane of fire and you found one, you could run and jump into that and you might get carried into the plane of fire. You might just turn into a hot dog. Yeah, you might, <laughs> it, it might It might just treat you like an air fryer, but that, that would actually make
1: a really good portal. And then yeah. you can have like the witch sitting there riding her thing like in Wizard of Oz, except to be all fiery. Yeah, I'll like get that. you That's, my pretties. That's actually, yeah, that's a a really fun, I'm going to take a moment with that. A couple other natural hazards or elemental hazards as it's listed in Dragon 347 that I thought were really neat. There's a thing called an ember root, which is a native plant that looks like a shriveled, burnt coconut. But if you pull the coconut part up off the ground, the, the plant itself is an edible but the root has a special water that's you know specifically for the plane of fire that's always drinkable and they say it's always around 70 degrees so it's like a really nasty room temperature water but it's drinkable and so if you're going back to fifth edition rules where unless you have water you start taking this exhaustion damage throwing some of these ember roots out so maybe you take like a perception check or survival check a nature check for your druids or your rangers or whoever. maybe they can find that maybe these plants are edible so there's some sort of plant life to drink from to preserve your party, which is actually a great idea. Did you have something to throw in on that?
0: No, no. Okay.
1: Another really cool thing. And just, I read about this and just, again, the picture I got, the mental image I got, this is really cool, but Cerulean magma. So this magma is so hot, it's burning blue. It's blue magma.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that sounds terrifying.
1: And on this, just because, you know, I'll actually read this for the text, but a pool of Cerulean magma tends to be roughly 20 feet diameter, within 100 feet of the pool of Cerulean Magma fire resistance or magical or natural is halved. Fire immunity is unaffected. Fire damage, including that from the plane itself, is doubled. The green smoke created by a pool of Cerulean Magma covers a 40-foot diameter area centered on the pool, and the green smoke deals 2d8 points of acid damage each round to anything within it with a DC 18 Fortitude save, halves the damage. So it's this blue, glowy pit of super ultra-hot magma with a nice little acid cloud on top of it.
0: It sounds like it's burning copper. That's kind of what it sounds like. I mean, I know copper burns green and not blue, but that cloud over top of it, that's burned off verdigris. That's exactly what that stuff does.
1: And, I mean, copper can burn blue. Generally, you get your cobalt. So, I mean, if you know any spectroscopy, or anything like that, you could actually definitely throw that in your elemental fire and having, you know, instead of having colored pools, you can have colored flames. Maybe make that like a point of attraction for your characters to go to, which actually would be a really cool idea.
0: And that would actually play into the whole Ifrit and the City of Brass. <laughs> that really because really Because copper is one of the two primary metals in brass. So it could be that they are hunting for these so that they can extract the copper from them to make brass.
1: That's a great idea, and I never even thought of that, but oh my god, yeah, because most of your metals and ores are going to be melted with the exception of this brass they use. So yeah, definitely trying to find mining nodes or mineral patches for that. What I was initially envisioning when I heard the Cerulean Magma was the blue Tiberium in the old Command yeah. & Conquer games. You know, that whole, one, it's blue and it's just a great color, and then if you started walking through it, you know, you'd take poison damage or whatever. Right, it. yeah. So that's kind of what I was thinking with that and then the last elemental thing that they post in this dragons for the plane of fire which is beautiful and terrifying at both so you've got the elemental plane of fire everything's going to burn you to death and then you have ebony moats, which are these little floating pockets of pure darkness and cold so it's the exact opposite and again per the text an array of ebony motes covers an area roughly 400 feet in diameter and lasts five d six rounds ebony moats usually move in a straight line at a speed of 90 feet though occasionally They move sporadically and Ebony Array cloaks the area within it in darkness as the deeper darkness spells and deals 2d20 points of cold damage per round to any creatures or objects within it with a DC 15 fortitude save takes half damage. So again, it's just these pockets of utter absolute cold and darkness just to keep things interesting.
0: Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind, because you have lava all over The damage per round for falling into lava is 20 d10 fire damage. Just keep that in mind.
1: Just a brick of d10s. Keep that in mind before, you know, you take that initial jump into the pool of lava that may or may not be a portal.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Make sure that you have something that gives you fire immunity before you do that. And remember that you can drown in lava. So there are some lava rivers that flow very quickly. And so you still have to make the athletics check to swim in it and even if you are immune to fire you can still drown in it the same as you would drown in water on the material plane absolutely and the thought of drowning in lava is absolutely terrifying
1: just that last breath
0: just just the fact that you know you're not being consumed by the lava that you're just being overwhelmed by
1: By, it yeah i would imagine just the pressure would be crushing just because yeah that would be molten rock
0: yeah it's nasty
1: I was just like, for drowning, the thought of that last breath you have to take, you know, where you actually suck the water into your lungs. Yeah. It's always been one of those things that, that kind of freaked me out. So the fact that that last breath would just be liquid rock.
0: Yeah. <sighs> and because you are immune to the fire damage, you breathe it in and it actually turns to stone in your lungs. Oh, my
1: God. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, 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 no. Nope, we're done. We're done. it along. <laughs> okay. i'll give you a point on that one because dear god no
0: (laughs) so moving on to plane of water if you have problems with the plane of fire the plane of water is the point furthest from so it used to be an infinite sea without a surface so it was just this infinite globe of water it didn't matter how far you went in any direction it's just water everywhere but Now it actually is treated as a sea, so it has a surface. There are islands within it. It's divided into two strata. The upper is the Sea of Light, where all of the more good-aligned aquatic beasties are. That's where you find your tritons, where you find your merfolk and your sea elves and your marid, so your water genies. They're all up in the Sea of Light. And then in the darker portions, in the lower portions, you have the Darkened Depths. That's where you find all your evil water stuff. That's where you find your Kraken and your Aboleths and your marrow and your Sahagin. That's where you find Olhydra, the Princess of Evil Water. Olhydra is great as a big bad. She's this giant evil water elemental. Nice. And I'm actually using her as the big bad that is controlling the kraken, big bad that my party is currently dealing with in my home game. Awesome. So yeah, Oh, Hydra is kind of cool.
1: I did want to take a step back real quick and I did want to know a glaring omission in the plan of fire that, you know, we omitted it because I haven't really seen any reference to it. So you've got the fade arc and you've got, was it the shadow dark in the shadow realm and the, uh, and the,
0: yeah, life? you've got the Fay Dark and the Shadow Dark, yeah.
1: And you've obviously got the Dark Sea here, but there's no underdark equivalent in the Well plane no, of fire, because I believe.
0: it's fire.
1: Not that I've come across. Because it's fire. But still, I mean you Fire still have has a...
0: illumination. You oh. can't have an underdark that, that's illuminated. I guess, but
1: you'd think you'd have a reference. No, because or, uh... because
0: the inner realms don't really have that. Okay. The plane of water only has this because of the nature of water. Water. Because you because you have that deep dark ocean. You have the dark depths. You have like, you know, the bottom of the Marianas Trench. You have those sort of super dark, creepy places. And so there has to be an analog to that in the Plane of Water.
1: Okay, that makes perfect sense. I wasn't sure if there was supposed to be a... No. Okay.
0: No, there is not an Underdark equivalent outside of the Echo Plains. There needs to be. Imagine Fire Elves. Fire Drow. James, just stop. (laughs) Just stop. There are already 5 billion different varieties of elves. We don't need fire elves on top of it. <laughs> just, just stop. Um, <clears throat> so one of the interesting things about the plane of water, the way that it used to be, is that it had subjective gravity. The plane of water and the plane of air both. So down was the direction that you decided was down. And you would sink towards down whenever you entered the plane of water. You could swim against it, that was fine if you were able to swim, but you would actually be able to mentally maneuver yourself to just fall the direction that you wanted to while you were within the plane of water. The
1: astral plane was kind of like that too in older versions. I think it still translates that gravity is subjective, and so you would mentally, which way was down, and fall that direction you could fly.
0: Well, that's because the astral plane doesn't have physicality.
1: Correct, but that's the actual that
0: same... plane is the plane of thought, and so you have to think in order to move.
1: Right, but that subjective gravity, where gravity is the way that wherever it goes, kind of reminds me of also, you know, referencing going way back when to Ender's Game, when they're in zero gravity, they had that whole the enemy gate is down type thing.
0: Right. So the big location within the plane of water is the Citadel of Ten Thousand Pearls. That's where the court of the Merid is that's where their nominal emperor is this is where you have your political entry because according to the 3.5 books because there's not a whole lot on this in the 5e books
1: there really isn't yet and i'm sure that's something that'll be coming in the next several years i'd imagine
0: there may be something on it in the princes of the apocalypse module i don't have that so i haven't been able to look into that I think that's one that has a bunch of elemental stuff going on. I'm pretty sure that the elemental evils are in that book because it is the evil elemental princes, I think, are the princes of the apocalypse that they're talking about in the title. I could be completely wrong. So
1: I don't have that module either, so I am completely unaware.
0: So I'm going to go look up a synopsis after we're done. And if I'm wrong, I'm just going to cut all of this out. <laughs> um, but the Citadel of 10,000 Pearls is populated by about 200 Marid nobles and their entourages, which brings the total population of the Citadel up to roughly a thousand individuals. Each of these Marids thinks that they belong on the Coral Throne, which is the place where the emperor of the Marid rules.
1: It's the literal seat of power.
0: It is the literal seat of power. And so you end up having intrigue and assassinations and power struggles and power plays and all of that. If you want political intrigue, this is where you go.
1: Now, you were saying, what was your total population of the Citadel girls?
0: All told, it is about a thousand individuals It's 200 Marid plus their entourage.
1: Gotcha. So by comparison, the city of Brass uh, was estimated to be about 4 million individuals. So again, the wizards love their city of Brass. They're building up the other planes, which is great, but there's a vast difference there.
0: Absolutely. And the big difference between the two is that the Ifrit are lawful evil. They are very lawful and kind of evil. (laughs) <laughs> Whereas the Marid, they skew more towards the good side than the evil side, but they're very chaotic. You know, if you get five Marid into a room, you end up with seven opinions. That's what we're talking about here. They cannot come together to form a cohesive entity. And according to the third edition, the Marid individually are more powerful than any of the other types of genies they are the single most powerful genie entity that you can have but where they just don't cooperate for anything exactly that's the balance that they have is that they're stronger individually but they just cannot collaborate for anything
1: so the pop culture reference here is johnny depp uh, pirates of the caribbean Dead's man chest where they have their little pirate enclave and you know they're trying to vote who the leader is going to be and they always vote for themselves so they can never get anything done. That's kind of what you're getting here with the Marud.
0: The Marud, yeah. The Marid, and, then, and then on the other side, the East India Company is the Efreet. Yes, very much so. Lawful and kind of evil. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and very well organized. Yes. Yeah, that is actually a pretty good parallel. But so the other location within the Plain of Water in 3rd Edition that hasn't come across the 5th Edition yet is called the City of Glass, Which is actually a parallel to the city of Brass. Not just in the naming convention, but it is also a trade city. It is a hub of interplanar trade. And it is this sphere in the water. It's half full of water, half full of air. And it is purported to be unbreakable. It has broken in the past, and they have repaired it very quickly. And it is a very swift death sentence if you break it they make that very clear but there's some magic involved with the glass sphere that the city is contained in i think it's something like a five foot thick glass sphere that somehow is able to pull breathable air through as a membrane from the water surrounding it which is kind of cool that is really cool and there are various little portholes And some of the buildings start on one side of the sphere and carry through to the other side. So the building is half full of water and half full of air. So it can accommodate both aquatic and non-aquatic individuals. And despite it being this huge trade hub, the Marid don't actually control it. It's governed by a council of citizens. There are 15 races that are represented Within the city from the standard material realm, you know, human and elf and dwarf and all of those, plus the Sahagan, the Kuotoa, all of the various aquatic races. And the way that the council is set up is set up so that each of the major races is represented, but no race can have more than one representative on the council.
1: I'm going to make you hate me. Okay. I'm absolutely going to make you hate me. So the human representative. Absolutely has to be Polly Shore from Biodome. No. <laughs> I'm
0: going to veto this idea. <laughs> Hard veto. Not going to happen. <laughs> so this is another location where if you wanted to go on an interplaner shopping run and you didn't want to go to the city of Brass, maybe because you took issue with some of the moral incidents going on there. You, maybe you have a problem with slave trade. Understandable. This, the city of glass could be an appropriate alternative to the city of brass.
1: Absolutely. Now, in Game of Thrones, was it the city of Carth? That Was ruled by the council,
0: uh, yes, I think so. Where the warlocks, I mean, were, mo- most, most of the free cities were, were. ruled by a council, right? Davos so, right. was ruled by a council, um, Karth, I think, was Karth, was the wise masters, I think.
1: Okay, that's where the warlocks were, but yeah, again, it was that conglomeration. So, again, those, that kind those of the,
0: those are the big slaver cities.
1: But again, if you want to kind of get a touch point on how that the city would operate, you know, in familiar lore, it'd be something along those lines. So, again, the opportunity for political intrigue, some backbiting, some things like that. Someone trying to squeeze out a little bit more power in a corner wherever they could or riches or whatever else. Oh, um, there's,
0: a, there's a perfect D&D analog to this.
1: Okay. Waterdeep. You are absolutely correct, yes. The city
0: of Waterdeep is ruled by a council. Yes. Waterdeep would be the appropriate analog to the city of glass. Yes. That is how this city is run. Perfect. And for third edition where you had subjective gravity... It is agreed within the City of Glass that down is the half with the water in it. Makes perfect sense. That is just the general agreement of everybody who lives there. Down is where the water is, so up is where the air is. That just helps the interplanar travelers figure out how to orient themselves within the city. I haven't seen any depictions of it. I kind of want to think of it like, I mean, I would probably run it as like this sphere with all of the buildings built on the inside of the surface. So it actually is kind of a domed city, like an inverted dome city.
1: So like the buildings grow like barnacles? Yeah. That'd be actually really freaking cold.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. And then down is instead of down being where the water is, down is the surface on the inside of the sphere. I like that a lot. That's
1: actually a really, really
0: cool idea. And then you have this sort of open space in the middle where you can look up and you can see where the division between the air and the water is. And that way you can orient yourself within the city as to you know figure out where you're at and where you're trying to go. You can navigate by that once you figure out enough about it.
1: That would be so disorientating, though, because like everywhere you go, you're looking at the tops of buildings.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it would be total vertigo, but that would be something really cool. And you could actually build it on the scale of the City of Brass. You could make this thing, you know, a 40 mile diameter sphere.
1: And I mean, ultimately, that is the great thing. That is the absolute joy of world building and homebrew is that you can do whatever you want to do. And so there is no reason this shouldn't be a complete, you know, one-to-one mirror of the City of Brass. You know, same size and population and all that. That makes perfect sense.
0: Yeah, that would be really cool. Um, So there's a couple of other notable things within the Plane of Water. The first of which is in 5th edition, this is where the Isle of Dread is. In 4th edition, it was firmly stationed in the Feywild. In 5th edition, they've moved it primarily to the Plane of Water. It does still phase and it does still phase into the material plane. According to lore, there's nothing in 5th edition that says that it phases into the Feywild, but I would say that based on previous lore that it would.
1: It totally makes sense, yeah. It's it's
0: And that's why I brought up when we were talking about the Feywild, trying to get to the Plane of Water, you know, you find where the Isle of Dread is going to be. You can either get to it through the Feywild, or you can find out where it shows up in the material plane. And you can use this island, if you can survive it, as a way to jump dimensions.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. And a good start, like if you're running an upper level, you know, adventure, that's a great start is just getting your party to the Isle of Dread.
0: And then the other thing that I found when I was reading through the third edition manual of the planes that I absolutely fell in love with that I want to incorporate into an adventure is this thing called the Avenger. The Avenger is this giant manta ray. It's 90 feet from side to side and 180 feet from its nose to the tip of its tail. But it isn't a creature because it's propelled by screw turbines. And nobody can really really nail down exactly what it is. There's some people who think it's a construct. There's some people who think that it's a vehicle of some sort. There's some people who think that it's a combination of the two. The people who think that it's a vehicle think that maybe it's got some sort of expeditionary people on it. Maybe it's crewed by specters. Maybe it's this infamous Pirate and his crew. No two people are in agreement on exactly what the Avenger is.
1: I have an amazing answer for this. Okay, are you ready? Are you prepared? Buckle yourself in because this is going to be great. So I'm going to reference our podcast from a couple of weeks ago when we had our podcast with World Build with Us. This is another terraforming design beast. It could be.
0: <laughs> it very well could be. I don't know why it's in the plane of water.
1: Well, I mean, if you have divine beasts and terraforming things within the material realm, why not it, within? You know, an elemental plane.
0: I mean, because you're not terraforming to me would only really work on the material plane because all of the other planes are so intrinsically monochrome in their aspects.
1: Right. But where we talked about in previous versions, this was completely the plane of water used to be just a complete bubble. But now within the plane of water, you do have islands, you do have a surface level. So maybe this is something like along the lines of Kevin Costner's water world, where it's trying to dredge up land to create more land up top. You know, I mean, there would be some workable things, but I could totally see a tie in with that. (laughs) Ian's less than a fan of that idea.
0: (laughs) Well, mainly because you cut me off before I got to the cool part.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. My apologies.
0: Which is that it shoots lightning bolts That is really cool too, yes. In third edition, it shoots them as an 18th level sorcerer, which means that it's max damage 10d10 lightning bolts at will every turn.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, this is a very rare time where you get to roll the brick of d10s.
0: Yeah, (laughs) so you're like, okay, you're going to have to spread out because it's going to shoot a 120 foot line of lightning at somebody every single turn until you get on it. Right. And even then, it might still be shooting at you.
1: And the Avenger itself actually leads to something really neat and fun as far as storyline or whatnot to go with as far as a party or anything like that where the plane of fire everything is so hot that most of your metal components would slag out or break down the plane of water really leads itself to maybe like a steampunk type adventure where you could have a lot of these mechanical things i'm thinking like Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea or things like that where you've got like the old diving bells or you've got the old steam engines or even early mechanical electrical things and electrical damage is huge in the water plane a lot of things where, like I said where you're gonna have a lot of elemental fire damage in the plane of fire there's a lot of electrical damage that happens with the natural creatures within the plane of water
0: so and I can totally see I totally want to run a you're going to find the Avenger you're going to board the Avenger and you are going to commandeer the Avenger that is the goal of this adventure Oh, that'd be so much fun. Yes, an underwater submarine heist.
1: Yes, I think I saw this one with uh, Sean Connery and uh, oh what's his name? Alec Baldwin.
0: Are you talking, was it The Hunt for Red October? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's another one of those classic movies that I haven't actually watched yet.
1: The book was really good. And again, I was on a huge Crichton kick in college, so I got to read most of Creighton while well, I was waiting for my organic chemistry labs to process. That was one of his better ones, I think. I really enjoyed Hunt for Red October. Another good idea for a campaign, something like the old 80s movie, Abyss, you know, where you've got that super deep and you're trying to figure out kind of what life is down there and you've got that, you're living in a bubble type feel. Or even Crichton's uh, Sphere, yes. again, kind of touches along those lines as well. And again, it's that technology, different alien technology, everything kind of blending, what's here, what's there. These stories kind of, would give some really good prompts of adventures or ideas or scenarios you can run within the plane of
0: water. So there are a couple of other hazards to keep your eyes open for within the plane of water. For starters, you've got all of the various creatures. You've got all of the sentient aquatic creatures. You've got any aquatic creature that you can find in the material plane. So all of your dolphins and your sharks and your whales and all of those. But you're also going to have things like bronze dragons because they like coastal ocean location so they may go and traipse into the plane of water because they have water breathing the same with i think it's black and green dragons can breathe water so right so you might find some of them on occasion black and green less often but bronze dragons because they tend to live by the sea i could definitely see bronze dragons making trips into the plane of water
1: oh without question
0: you're going to have Kraken, you're going to have Aboliths, you're going to have Dragon Turtles.
1: Those are so much fun.
0: Yeah, I can totally see having to loot something from a Dragon Turtles horde on the plane of Water. You know, something that was offered to the Dragon Turtle in tribute or that was on a ship that failed to... Give the dragon turtle appropriate tribute so it sank the boat and claimed everything. You hate your parties. That's just where it is. <laughs> I mean, these are all for like a higher level thing. I wouldn't send anybody short of about 15th level into the plane of water after something that a dragon turtle's got. But aside from the creatures, you've also got things called the red tide. There are red tides in our world there are these giant red algae blooms that make the water toxic and it's the same sort of deal swimming into a red tide you have to make a constitution save once per minute or be afflicted with blinding sickness oh wow yeah yeah and they can be as small as you know 40 feet across or it can stretch for miles so yeah it is definitely something that can be a big hazard to contend with if it's something that's small and what you're trying to get to is in the middle of it you can you know make a quick in and out but if it's a big area like multiple miles wide then you have to think about how you're going to get around it or if what you need is inside of it You know, figure out how you're going to get into it, figure out if this patch of red tide is stationary or if it's moving, if it's moving, then figure out how to get out of its way until it passes by and then wait. Or if you're in a time crunch, do you wait for it to pass so you can get to your location safely or do you risk swimming through it to get to your location and have more buffer of time? So these are all things that you can throw in that would make a really interesting dynamic in an adventure, a really great environmental hazard.
1: I like the environmental hazards that can possibly move. And again, it's so much you can do with a map that can change it, take a boring map and make it something memorable. So yeah, I mean, I'm all for that.
0: And then you have whirlpools and sometimes a whirlpool is just a whirlpool. And sometimes a whirlpool is a portal to the material plane. And sometimes a whirlpool is a portal to one of the outer planes that has a lot of water going on. So there's a lot of uncertainty involved in a whirlpool. And if you don't know what's at the bottom of it, it can be really nasty, really dangerous to get caught in one. So yeah, whirlpools whirlpools on the material plane are a great portal to use to get into the plane of water. So... The same would work the other way. Think of it like wormholes. Oh, I like that. That's a great concept. But there's the one last really nasty environmental hazard from the third edition book is called a tidal bore, and they describe them as great fluid avalanches. If you get caught in one, you have to make, I think it's a strength save or a constitution save. Actually, I think it was a fortitude save in third edition, but is either fort or a reflex. And You make that save against the damage because you get hit for like, I think it's like 2d10 bludgeoning damage or some such. But regardless of whether you save versus damage or not, you get picked up by this thing and it can carry you for miles. That's
1: actually a good way to, you could either use that as a plot hook as your party's there, they get picked up and now they're totally lost. Or if you've got to really push your party because they're dilly-dallying at one point too long, then just kind of give them a very gentle but pronounced DM boot. Just poop. Okay, there you go.
0: (laughs) And you could actually, in theory, use this as a means of traveling from the plane of water back into the material plane. So let's say they get picked up in one of these tidal bores and they get swept along and they end up getting deposited on a beach in a tsunami. Oh, that'd
1: be kind of awesome. That'd be a great way to do that. Well done. So you talk about this tidal bore and I grew up in California. So we had the California coast here along the East coast. Cause I also had family in Jersey and stuff, but people out here, they talk about rip currents, which can pull you out. But along the California coast, they had something. It's like a rip current, but it's different. It's called an undertow. That was literally a current that went under the surface of the water. So that was always the big danger was like, if you felt a pool or if, there were certain areas you weren't able to go swimming because there would be an underwater current that could literally like take your feet from under you and then pull you out. So instead of, you know, being in a rip current and being seen on the surface, You went under and out. And so that's kind of what this water bore reminds me of. Now I'm I'm having these memories of being warned about undertoes when I was a little kid.
0: Whenever you're talking about natural portals to get to the plane of water, I mentioned a couple. You've got whirlpools. You're possibly getting swept out to sea by a tsunami. Getting caught in a wave and pulled out as it recedes, that might be violent enough and enough just aquatic energy going on to rip you into the plain of water i can totally see this area where these tsunamis are semi-regular maybe there's a lot of volcanic activity or something so you have a lot of earthquakes but whenever the signs appear you absolutely make sure that you get out of wherever it is because the people who get sucked out to sea by this wave never come back their bodies are never found and it's because they get pulled into the plane of water.
1: That'd be a great explanation for that. I like that. Another way I would imagine is like if you've got a diving party and you do a shipwreck or something like that, but you've got the people that explore the underwater caves, that would be another great. So you go into a cave, you get lost, you come out, and now you're in a different plane.
0: So like deep sea trenches, that would be a oh, great perfect. way. Oh, perfect, yes. That would be a great way to get into the darkened depths. Powerful storms, hurricanes, typhoons, water cyclones, all of these sorts of very powerful storms are good ways to pull especially if they're on a ship at the time. Because in 5th edition, now where the plane of water has a surface that it didn't have in 3rd edition, because it has a surface, there are ships that get sucked into the plane of water and they're just stuck sailing on the plane of water because they're trying to find another whirlpool or another portal that can take them back to the material plane. But until they do, they're just stuck floating on the plane of water
1: yeah and anything like maelstrom whirlpool cyclone ish kind of has that whole portal feel to it anyway i'm not sure if you intended these with water cyclones because they could be considered such as well but you know again we had the fire tornadoes so just a good old-fashioned water spout
0: yeah that's what i meant okay i wasn't sure well i mean
1: cyclone can cover so many things i wasn't sure if that's what you were particularly meaning or if that was just kind of lumped in
0: if i remember correctly hurricanes and typhoons are both Technically considered water cyclones. Yes. It just depends on where they form in which ocean they form and where they make landfall, whether it's a typhoon or a hurricane.
1: Any spinny weather in the water is the water cyclone. <laughs> yes.
0: But there's an interesting way to use the plane of water to venture into the outer planes. So both the river sticks and the river Oceanus have vortices that connect to the plane of water. That makes absolute perfect sense. So if you can find the right vortex, you can get onto the river Styx to get into the Nine Hells or the Abyss. So are you sailing away? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) We can't go further than that because of copyright. Fair enough. (laughs) And then if you're wanting to get into the upper planes, if you can find the vortex into Oceanus... That carries you into Arborea or Elysium or the Beastlands, and it takes you to the Gates of the Moon, which is in Eastgard. So you actually have connection to four of the positive outer planes, four of the different good aligned outer planes from the plane of water. You just have to know where to go.
1: Right. And again, I hadn't even thought of that. That does make perfect sense.
0: Yeah, it is a brief throwaway line in the third edition manual of the planes that both of these rivers have a vortex that connects to the plane of water. But these are sorts of ways that you can use natural portals to get to where you want to go. So if you're in the material plane and you want to get to, say, Elysium, because the headwaters of Oceanus are in Elysium. I think they're on one of the layers of Elysium. It goes through all four layers. And so what you can do is you can sail into a hurricane. (laughs) It's crazy, but it might just work.
1: It's just a little bit safer than jumping into a pool of lava, but not a whole lot.
0: (laughs) Not a whole lot. It requires less preparation ahead of time, but you might still drown. So you can sail into a hurricane to get yourself deposited onto the plane of water, find your way to say the city of glass to get yourself a navigator or a guide, or maybe you can find before you even leave, find say a triton or a sea elf who knows the plane of water and can be your guide. Once you get to the plane of water, get to the city of glass to orient yourself, then find this vortex to oceanus, get onto the river oceanus from the plane of water. And now you're on your way to Elysium. I like it. So that's how you can get from the material plane to Elysium without seventh level spells.
1: Yeah. I like it. Now, there was one thing that I'm surprised you didn't mention, particularly when you were mentioning some really awesome monsters within the Plane of Water. And I have to throw this in. I can't let this escape because, again, this ties in with, one, an awesome monster, and two, a way to actually get into the Plane of Water, as we've discussed, within the same thing. But your party could be out there, you know, doing its whole Wellerman thing, singing their sea shanties, and you come across a Leviathan. The Leviathan itself is just a freaking awesome monster but also as an action can create its own tidal wave. So you could sit there, Come across this Leviathan, do a little bit of damage to it, whatever, not knowing or knowing and just being fully hubris enough to try it. It creates a tidal wave, pulls you into the plane of water, and then thinks it's going to strand you there, or you can continue your fight within the plane of water. Either way, both of those could be a lot of fun.
0: Yes, and with the introduction of the Elder Elementals in Mordenkind's Tome of Foes, I think the Leviathan is actually in... In Mordenkainen's, yes, that is correct. And that is another one of the big nasties that... Lives in the darkened depths is the Leviathans. So, yeah, that would definitely be another way to get across, probably unintentionally.
1: Yes. Again, unless you were like trying to do a whole Moby Dick thing and just, you know, you had Captain Ahab with his peg leg and he's sitting there going to get vengeance on the Leviathan. So, you got looking for it. I don't know why exactly you don't want to pick that fight, but crazier things have happened.
0: Yes, absolutely. All right. So I think that just about does it. Awesome.
1: This has been a lot of fun. A lot of things to consider. So much you can work with just these two planes. And we've got two more just as good lined up for next week. So I'm actually kind of looking forward to getting to these as well.
0: Yeah. Next week, we're planning on doing the planes of air and earth. And then after that, we're going to do the transitional planes. So planes of ice, ooze, ashes, and magma. Magma. Magma magma (laughs) and at some point in all of there we're going to briefly touch on the elemental chaos because there isn't a whole lot going on in the elemental chaos chaos Um, the elementals are about (laughs) the only things that go out into the elemental chaos and even they don't like going out there and they don't stay out there very long because it's basically where the elements have become so pure they've become so volatile That they just sort of spin off and intermingle and you have some weird stuff going on out there. I like weird. And it is super hostile. So you don't really touch it. (laughs) No touchy. No touch the fishy. So thank you everyone for bearing with us and joining us for our trip into the Plains of Fire and Water today. If you have any comments or suggestions or ideas that you would like us to run with, please send us an email at undercommon at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing my Shakespearean Insult Page A Day calendar inspired role play prompts. You've had some Sixth-
1: really fun prompts pop up the past week.
0: Yeah, I've had some good stuff come up in the last few days but I'm still doing those 6 days a week they're going up on the Twitter account and they're getting cross-posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts at undercommon taste. We are now on Patreon, patreon.com/undercommon taste. If you want to help us financially keep the show going, please come and be a patron. All of our content is being uploaded to the Patreon account and our patrons are going to get exclusive extra bonus content. On top of most of the write ups that we've done. So, for instance, the She write up that we did, everyone got access to the Sealy and Unsealy courts, but our patrons are also getting access to the Coral, Gloaming, and Wild Court She. So, you're actually getting extra stuff on top of that just for being a patron. And that's for all patron levels. Once we start getting stuff finished and up on DMs Guild or DriveThruRPG, everyone who's a patron automatically gets a free PDF copy of anything that we put out for sale as a thank you for actually supporting us financially. So there's a lot that's coming to the Patreon account. It may or may not be there yet. By the time this episode comes out, I'm working on getting our backlog of stuff Put up onto our Patreon account and starting to work through all of the extras. So once we get all that stuff up, that all of the new stuff, patrons are going to be starting to get some exclusive content. So we're very excited to provide extra stuff. And so if you could provide us a little bit of financial support, we would greatly appreciate it.
1: So again, as always, you can find us on most podcasts. But if you want to tell your friends, we can be found pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. So as always, give us a rating and a review. That does help increase our visibility. And again, the more visibility we get, the more interactions with our, or with our fans and listeners gives us more ideas for content. So we can actually produce content that you're interested in as well, not just, you know, our own random tangents, which are personally fun because again, I am the center of everything.
0: <laughs> so thank you again for joining us and we'll see you again next week. Happy gaming all. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommontaste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCTHomeBrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash taste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.